This is a tough passage, Lord. There are sharp words here. And Father, um, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to hear what it is you are saying to us in this passage. Lord, we pray that you would, by your Spirit's help, illuminate this text in our hearts so that we may first understand why it exists in your word and secondly, what you desire for it to accomplish in our hearts this morning. Lord, we want to be biblical people. We want to have our mind and our hearts shaped by your word. And so take this word, this proclamation, and shape it according to your truth. Lord, may anything that I say that isn't true, would it fall to the ground and be immediately forgotten? But may your truth reside, Lord, in our hearts. This is what we pray and ask in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. And everyone said, amen. This is a challenging passage. Do you not see it? It's, uh, it's interesting. And it, it, uh, it required some significant uh, thought, prayer, study as I looked at it this week. But I, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever lacked clear expectations or clear guidance about something that was really important to you? Have you ever lacked that? You probably might be thinking, yeah, I I lack it all the time. I have situations in which I find myself without clear expectations. Well, I want to share with you a story about how one time I lacked clear expectations. So at my former church, I was youth pastor there for eight years and I was hired. And on my first day on the job, I, I came into the office and there I was with my senior pastor, who who remains to me a good friend. And so uh, what I'm going to share, we joke about uh, among he and I. But but I walked in. Again, you know, I'm a wet-behind-the-ears young youth pastor ready to go and expecting, you know, a day of orientation. Okay, here's how we do this. Here's the procedure for that, uh, etc. I walk in. He says, Jeremy, good morning. Welcome. And I thought, okay, this is off to a good start. And he says, this is your office. That is your computer. The administrative assistant's name is Jan. If you have any questions, ask her. And he went into his office and shut the door. (laughs) I kid you not. This is the truth. Like, this is my training on the job for what I experienced. I I, I can say now that, you know, God was with me and, and gave me grace to learn what to do and how to do it and all that. But it was kind of humorous on that day as I came in with certain expectations and those expectations were certainly not met in that moment. Well, here we find in this passage that there are certain expectations that the disciples had as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem. They had expectations of what was coming in a few short days. And Jesus, though he's been trying to communicate with them clearly about what to expect when they go to Jerusalem, they just are, are, they're just not getting it. Their hearts were dull. I wonder if part of the reason that the sharp language that Jesus uses in this passage was to rouse them from their slumber and say, guys, listen, wake up. This is what's coming. This is what I'm expecting of you. I want you to be informed. In fact, Luke himself, he tells us why he writes this parable. Look with me at verse 11. 
It says this, and they heard, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Why? Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So what does that mean? It means this, that, that there was this buzz and excitement about Jesus Christ. He had just healed a blind man on the roadside who had called out to him. I mean, this is not just some ordinary man. This is Jesus Christ. And for those who were paying spiritual attention, they would say, hey, that's a fulfillment of Isaiah. This is, this is a fulfillment of the promise 600 years ago. This guy's significant. In fact, this guy's the Redeemer. And now's the time. He's walking to Jerusalem. He's got amazing power. He's going to set up our kingdom. He's going to kick out the Romans. I mean, can you see the excitement that would build if you're waiting for 600 years for the Messiah to show up and you perceive that now he's here? You wouldn't be like twiddling your thumbs on the side of the road. You'd be like, come on, let's go, Jesus. Let's let's get there already. Let's set you on that Davidic throne that you are entitled to have. And 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 so there's, I believe, this this pitch. In fact, in the next passage, we see the, the reality of this feverish pitch as, as people, when he enters into Jerusalem, what do they do? They're like throwing their cloaks down on the road. They're, they're laying down palm branches. They're saying, Hosanna is he, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're so excited because they believe that the kingdom of God has come in its certain reality on that earth, in that city, in that place. And Jesus is wondering, I'm sure, a few days later, where, where are all those people who were excited? Where, where is that crowd when everyone is saying, crucify him? Well, their expectations within just a few short days had changed. And the expectations of the disciples are radically about to change. And because Jesus loves them, he wants them again to know what to expect. And he's, he's spoken plainly to them that it, it just did not penetrate. So he, he employs a parable. So what we're going to do is just walk through this parable, uh, kind of verse by verse. And then at the end, I, I'm going to make two points of application because it seems that that's that's where we'll, we'll be helped to end up. So, so he says he tells them this story to try to communicate expectation about what's to come. The main ideas here are that Jesus is going away. Like the man who is with them, this master who's, who's with these servants, he, he's going away to receive a kingdom. And while he's gone, he has expectations on his servants for what they're to do. And so he gives them these, these, each a mina, and he has expectation for them to be working and laboring while he's gone. So what is Jesus communicating to them? He's saying, brothers, sisters, disciples, I am leaving. I'm going away after my resurrection. I'm going to send back to the Father. I'm going to go to another place. And it's going to be some time until I return again. And while I'm gone, I have expectation of those who are my disciples that they will use what they've been given for the king's purposes, to build the king's kingdom. Look at verse 12. Let's pick up the story. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. There's a lot of action. In fact, there's a lot of time in this verse. So this parable begins with an unidentified noble man. 
This man went to a far country to receive a kingdom. And in this foreign land, he receives his kingship. He is granted this. And so, again, in this verse, Jesus is drawing attention to his soon departure. He will depart after his resurrection and he will be away. And how immediately, as we know from the the gospel of Luke and the other gospels, how do the disciples respond when Jesus is crucified in just a few short days? Even though he's trying to warn them and prepare them now, what do they do? They scatter. They're, they're dismayed. They, they, they don't understand what's going on, even though Jesus was seeking to communicate with them. They, they wanted him to finally beat the Romans and, and kick them out. And they're dismayed. And, and this story, as he tells it, was to prepare them to help. So let's pick it up at verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And in other words, one mina each. He said to them, engage in business until I come. So this nobleman, again, he had expectation of his servants while he was gone. And he issues them an imperative. Um, he's saying, listen, here's what you do. You engage in business. Now, in the original language, the, the force of this imperative has the effect of saying, make a profit. In other words, do something with what I'm giving you and, and do it for the cause and the sake of my kingdom. Make a profit. Use what I'm giving you to do. This, this wasn't a, a loose thought like, hey, maybe if you want to be industrious, let's get to it. No, this was a command. This was an imperative. This was what faithful servants do. The master was proclaiming. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, the citizens are stand in uh, stark contrast to his servants. The servants are the ones who he gave the, the mina to. Ten of them each received a mina. The citizens, that speaks to the, the broad uh, population, the population of the people. And, and they, they hate him. They, they send a delegation after him to communicate, hey, we don't want this man as our king. We have no interest in him. You, you keep him. We don't want him. And the citizens and the response, it mirrors, I believe, the, the response of the Jewish population. Those who, whose vast thought about Jesus Christ is, this guy is out to lunch. I read one commentator this week that said, at the height of Jesus' ministry, it's possible that he may have had, at the height of it, he may have had up to 500 disciples of some type. Certainly he had, at this point, he has 12. There are people who are around. There may have been others who followed him. And so, so this guy went through a long detailed list, which I won't do. But, but simply to say, at the height of his earthly ministry, it's possible that Jesus had as many as 500. Uh, we're not talking about this amazing throng of people. And so what, what he's speaking to now, when he talks about these citizens that don't want him, that hate him, that send a delegation, in fact, to be sure that he knows we don't want you as king. That is the rejection of the Israelite people and those who surround them. If the citizens, and this, this has implication then on the servants. If the citizens hate the king, 
Will they not also hate the servants of the king? You see, Jesus is, is making some claim here on their hearts, even as he's talking about how the citizens hate him. They're saying, if, if they hate me, they're going to hate you too. If you're doing my work, I'm leaving you this, this mina. I'm, I'm commanding you to, to be engaged in business, uh, the business of the master. And if, if they hate me, they're going to hate you as well. See, he's setting the expectations of the disciples so that they're not blown away when they encounter real difficulty in their followership of Jesus while he's gone. Verse 15. The journey is now come back. He, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The servants are responsible for carrying on this business and now he's back and they're going to be called to give an account. They're going to be called to give an account. Um, we'll get to this in the application, but I, I just say uh, what's true of them is true of us. That one day, as God's people, we will be called upon to give an account and, and so in a theological way, Jesus is drawing their hearts and their minds to the fact that there is a stewardship in the body of Christ. That those who are servants of the true master, there is a stewardship to be lived out. As we have gifts and, and graces that the Lord has given to us to use and utilize for the service of his kingdom, that we might bear fruit for the kingdom... There will be a day when we will be called to give an account. And the question remains, and that I hope, uh, I believe what should reverberate in our hearts this morning is, what are you doing? What am I doing right now today with the gifts that God has given to you and to me for the cause of the kingdom? How can you use the gifts that God has given to you in your workplace, in your school, on your sports team, wherever you find yourselves, what and how can you use those gifts for the sake of the kingdom? Because one day, dear friends, here's the stark truth. One day we will be called to account. Verse 16. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten Minus more. Now, if we're doing the math, that's like a thousand percent profit. And so probably some of you are thinking, man, I'd love this guy to be my retirement portfolio manager, right? Like I'd like that kind of return on our money. And the king, as he has returned, says, that's amazing. Well done. And, and he rewards this man. Now, how is it that that came about? It came about by this man actually obeying the command of the master to work and engage in business. He used what God had given to the purposes for which God had given it. And notice, the king rewards that faithfulness. Verse 17, And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. So this king recognizes faithfulness when he sees it. And he's amazed at the industriousness and the way in which this man has employed what God had given for the purposes of the kingdom. See, if we're faithful in little, 
God rewards with more. So what is God after this morning? Is he after that, that you have this huge influence, that, that, that you leverage every bit of your... He's after faithfulness, even in the smallest of things. Because he's looking at you and asking you this morning, even as he asked me, are you faithful? Are you engaged? Are you using the gifts that I've given you for the purpose of the building of the kingdom? And as we are, as we do, there are rewards that come not only in this life, but especially in the life to come. As we think about this celestial city, I loved our song set this morning, just drawing our hearts and our minds together to that that day that's coming when we will be with the Lord in Zion City together. We will be walking those streets of gold, but more than any of the pleasures of the kingdom of heaven that await us, the ultimate joy is that we will be with the Lord. He is our reward. Until he comes, though, this is the point, until he comes back in a glorious return, dear friends, there is work to be done, and he rewards this faithful servant. Verse 18, and the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So similar to the first servant, there is a reward for that labor, that faithfulness to the master's Command, verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Here's where the story turns. There's a lot of emphasis on this third servant. This third and final servant stands in contrast to the first two that we've heard because as they were faithful, there was a reward that they brought to their master and he in turn rewarded them. Whereas this now one, this faithless servant did not engage in the work that the master had commanded him to do. He was a rebellious servant. He was a lazy servant. He was one who did not engage and, and he even reveals some of the reasons why he did not engage. He said, I, I didn't do this because I feared you. So he, he put a judgment out on this king, on this master. He said, you know, you're a harsh man. You, you, you take what you didn't sow and, and, and you're, you're just harsh. And, and because of his judgment, I mean, the servant is standing in judgment of the master. Isn't that ironic? What has the master done? He has given to the servant. And yet what was the response of the servant? To judge the master and say, hey, I didn't do this because you're an awful guy. You're not fair. You're not good. And his judgment of the master stands in the way of his own obedience. Let's continue on in the story. Verse 22, he, the master, said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? We see the master here pronouncing a severe rebuke on this servant. 
This is, again, this is an unfaithful servant, one who rebelliously looked the other way at the master's command. Additionally, he had judged him to be something that he was not. This servant's view of the king was twisted and it was wrong. We already saw how generous the master was with those who obeyed his command. And yet here is this wicked, unloving servant. The stories continue. Verse 24, And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. The crowd reacts, right? They say, hey, this doesn't seem to be just to us. Verse 25, And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's a hard verse, (laughs) dear friends. Um, As a result of this servant's unfaithfulness, his mina was taken away and then given to the one who bore the most fruit. It might strike us as unfair, but the faithful servant gets the reward and the other unfaithful servant, he gets the rebuke. The crowd responds in shock that this would be the case. Um, So let's talk about who this third servant is. This is sobering. This indeed is, is a most challenging, again, a most challenging passage to interpret. But I believe that this verse, this third servant, represents people who relate to the king in the sense that they associate with the community of the king and may even have responsibility in that association. Yet their attitude over time is revealed. It's, it's telling. They think him harsh and demanding. Therefore, they don't follow him. They think that he's not gentle and lowly as Jesus described himself. They don't trust him. They don't want to work for him. They're not inclined toward his kingdom or his kingdom purposes. They are, in fact, faithless people who are near to the king's people, but in fact are not faithful servants. In fact, we don't have to look very far to see examples of this right in the account of Luke. Because just a few pages away from this, we read of one who is right with Judas. I still, my mind cannot get over this. Judas was with Jesus for three years. He, he saw him turn water into wine. He saw the miracle of the blind man receiving sight. Yet there was something he did not believe. See, this servant is one who, who is around the people of God, who might even associate in some kind of way, but in the end analysis, they are not with God. In fact, the, the master here calls this servant a wicked servant. God would never declare that over someone in his own family. And this man is shown to be who he is. He was one who was closely associated with the people of God, but actually didn't turn out to be one of the people of God. That's sobering, dear friends, is it not? That, that, that there can be people who grow up in the church, that who, who are involved in the activities of the church, and yet their life will prove by their lack of commitment to the mission, their lack of engagement, and their lack of relationship with Jesus Christ, 
that they are not part of the church. And so this is a moment of sobriety. This is a moment for us to take stock of our hearts and our lives and say, am I a servant of the king? Do I love to use what God has given me to serve him and to advance his cause on this earth? Jesus is resetting the expectations for disciples. He says, I'm going away. And in my absence, don't lose faith. Don't lose heart, but work hard. Take what I've given you and and multiply it for the cause of my purposes. And finally, a sober word of judgment. And then we'll get to the application in a moment. Verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is a very striking and graphic word for us. And as I said a moment ago, I wonder if Jesus uses such sharp words and graphic imagery to wake us from our slumber and our domestication of Christ. You know, sometimes we talk about Jesus like he's a warm, fuzzy blanket on a, on a cold fall day. And yes, Jesus is gentle and lowly. Those are the descriptions of who he is. But we must not push out in our understanding of Jesus as gentle and lowly the fact that Jesus is a righteous king, that Jesus is a just king, that Jesus is a holy king. He is not to be trivialized with. See, rebellion against the king, rejection of the king will ultimately will be met with judgment of the king judgment in hell for eternity for anyone who ultimately rejects the king you know as i reflect on these words in verse 27 i I, man i'm sobered by them because jesus wants us to be gripped he wouldn't use this kind of language if he didn't want us to be gripped with the reality that's right before us that the people in your neighborhood that don't know jesus christ They will go and be apart from his goodness in a horrible place called hell. And he wants us to be motivated by these words, I believe, to be faithful to the mission. So often we we can miss it, can't we? We can get focused on all kinds of other things. Jesus is issuing a reminder to us that those who reject him those citizens who say, we don't want you as king. That as, as we grow in compassion for them, because we want them to know the truth, as we reach out to them and love them with the love of Christ, that they might understand how much Jesus loves them, that he desires for us to be faithful to the task. See, when I, when I read this, you know what it does in my heart? It makes me thankful that, that Christ has opened the eyes of my heart, you know, I didn't deserve to have the eyes of my heart opened. I was a rebellious sinner just like this third servant. Just like those who rejected him. I was not someone who was seeking after Christ. He rescued me. And what does that do? But it it gives me love for people who right now are rejecting him. Even though it will come at cost. Because you know as well as I, in this day and age, when we say there is one way to God... One, not many, not all religions, one way to God. And it's only through Jesus Christ. We know what is going to come back to us when the world hears that message. You are bigoted. 
You are terrible. And, and you can think of a whole lot of other things they might say. We will be rejected. And yet God has a mission for us to engage in. See, it, it sobers me. It humbles me. It, it motivates me to reach out to people who are, who are not, not seeking after the Lord at all. There's a man I've been sharing Christ with for years. Seems like every third word that he says is, is something that should be bleeped out. I don't mind that. Because why would he speak a different way? He doesn't know the Lord. But, but God draws me to his heart because I hope that one day God will open his eyes. That he'll be able to see. So I can look beyond the language. I can look beyond other things that he does. And pray and hope that one day God would open his eyes. So that what is said in verse 27 isn't true of him. That he wouldn't be sent off to a, a hopeless eternity in hell. I pray that God would give us hearts to hear and hearts to perceive. Because Jesus is still offering himself. This is the good news. What, what again is about to happen? Jesus is walking into Jerusalem. He's going to be killed for the sake of everyone who will ever turn to him. And that's our message, church. It's our message. It's like the gospel is, is available to all so that they would turn and know and understand the hope of Jesus Christ. So this leads us right into our application. Application number one. Do you know and love Jesus? This may seem like a simple question. Jeremy, we're in the church. You know, we all know and love Jesus. No, I'm asking you. Do you know and love Jesus? If Judas could be in the company of the eternal Son of God for three years and still remain in unbelief, do you think it's possible that someone could be in the company of believers for three or for 30 years and still not believe. It's certainly possible. And so I pray that those watching online and those here gathered together, do you, do you know and do you love Jesus? Is he your king? Do you desire to use what he gives to advance his cause? Even at great sacrifice to yourself. Is he your king? Do you love your king? And I just want to say, if you don't know the king of the world, this Jesus Christ, he is here today to meet with you, to forgive you of your sins, to welcome you into his family as you repent and believe. And so I ask you, in all sobriety, given this text and the language of this text, I ask you, do you know and love this king? I'm not asking you, are you a member of this church? I'm not asking you if you've grown up in a Christian home. I'm asking you, do you know and do you love this king, this king died in your place that you might know him and love him and serve him joyfully with your heart and with your life. Application point number two. The king is returning. Praise the Lord. This is what we sing, right? The king is returning one day in glorious power, in great victory. It's going to be an awesome day. However, on, on his return... There will be a time when we will be called to account. Called to account for how we've used what he's given for his glory. 
for his kingdom. And so I just want to slow this down for a moment and ask you some questions, ask my own heart these questions. How are you investing your gifts, talents, and resources for the purposes of advancing the kingdom? Let me get one thing out of the way. In this, I'm not asking, do you write a tithe check on occasion to the church? I'm not primarily talking about resources financial. Though that is one way that we do participate, as Chris just uh, celebrated a, a few moments ago, your faithfulness in giving. That's not primarily the focus here. Because even unbelievers can write checks. Even unbelievers can give to causes. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the resources of gifting and how God has created you. Are you utilizing those things for the cause of building His kingdom? Because the challenge is sometimes we use those things to build our kingdom. Is your desire to serve your master, even at sacrifice, even if it costs you, is that your desire? See, Jesus is looking for those who will be faithful in little, even if it's small. Be faithful. He is looking for faithfulness. See, why did the king reward that first and second servant? It was because they were faithful. It's not because they had big things going on. They had one mina. It was small. But through his grace, they were able to work and labor. And, and that multiplied the advance of the kingdom. And he rewarded them because they had been faithful to do it. So let me ask you. Right now, do you, would you say, yes, I am using my gifts to the full of my capacity for the cause of God. And if that's true, praise the Lord. My guess is, though, in, in a room like this, because I'm in this room and you're in this room, probably we all have more to grow. There are other ways that God may be calling us to use our gifts. And that's why I believe this text exists. Jesus didn't tell this story so that we'd feel good about where we are. He's telling us in graphic terms so that we're alerted and kind of jolted awake again. That's right. God's given me these things so that I might use them for his kingdom and his glory. And I, I want to I admit, too, you know, there are times when serving and living for the master while he's gone, while, he's, while we're waiting his return, it can be hard, right? It can be challenging. If they, they reject the master, they're going to reject the master's servants. And so we don't deny and we set our expectations and say, hey, you know, not everyone is going to congratulate us for being a Christian and wanting to share that with other people. No, we will encounter difficulty. I love what one pastor said. The Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. And where is that direction headed? We're headed toward the celestial city with our eyes on the Lord. When we see others falling into disbelief. When we see others departing from the faith, it, it rocks our world, doesn't it? Sometimes you wonder, what was their expectation? Well, what was our expectation? We see people falling away and, and, and it, it really affects us. What was the expectation going into it? That, that it's just going to be Jesus and me and, and Jesus is going to make my life you know, a, a better version of myself. No, there is this call to faithful service 
in the life of Christ. I want to illustrate this from the Apostle Paul. You may recall, he wrote these letters to Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor. And he, he didn't exactly know what he was doing. And, and Paul was trying to set expectations for Timothy out of love uh, with the rigors of being a pastor in a church. And, and near the end of his second letter to Timothy, um, he finds that, that many, in fact, most had deserted him. And he was standing alone near to the end of his gospel ministry and his life. Here, here's Paul, a faithful servant of God who suffered much. And he's, he's finding that, that all had deserted him. And listen to what he says. This is 2 Timothy 4. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's a man who's been faithful to Jesus Christ, serving and using his gifts unto the Lord. Maybe more than anyone in history, you know, that we know about. This was a faithful man. At the end of his time, all had deserted him. They'd all, all left him and gone away and actually done him some significant harm. And what is the testimony of his joy in his life? It's that he has on this road toward that celestial city. He is not alone. He has a companion. But the Lord stood by me and comforted me. See, some of you are walking a road right now that I don't know about. Maybe most people, maybe everyone doesn't know about. And sometimes you can feel very much alone. You can feel very much like, hey, you know, where did my friends go? There are times when the Christian life can feel lonely. And the reward of walking with Jesus Christ is that he never leaves you. He never leaves you alone. You'll never face a day when you're called to walk alone. Jesus stood by me and he strengthened me. So I want to call the worship team out. Though this has been a a bit of a sober message, I hope I've been faithful to the text to reflect what's in the text. Here's what I want to say at the end. We're going to sing a song that gets us thumping once again with the joy of following Jesus. We're going to sing a song that, that declares that, that we want to be a part of the kingdom of God. We want, to, we want to use what we have to build the kingdom here. And so I want to end on this note. You know, if the Lord is sobering you with how you may not have been using lately your gifts for the cause of his kingdom, let, let's, let's get up and let's use those gifts for the cause of the kingdom as he sees you. And, and let us, dear friends, let us be of good cheer. The, we are the dear servants of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And while he is away receiving his kingship, he will come again. We know this to be true. He's going to come again and he's going to bring us to himself and we will be with the Lord. And so while we don't know, dear friends, what tomorrow holds, we know that our king is coming and he's coming soon. And yes, we will stand to account. And so we have to be sobered by that. But let us also rejoice today that our king delights in our service to him, that it actually brings him worship When you go and help someone move, like a whole crowd gathered at Susan McNeil's house yesterday to to bless her and serve her as she was moving. It blesses God when you open your house in hospitality to, to people in the church 
and people outside the church. It blesses God when you use your gifts for the cause of the kingdom. And so I want to encourage us now. We, we have this road. Would you stand with me as we conclude? We have this road that God has marked out for us. We don't know. Here's what we don't know. We don't know all of the twists and the turns in that road. We don't know all the things that are coming. But what we do know is this. That we have a companion who is going to stand by us and press us on. He's going to walk with us and help us. See, Jesus is still using his gospel to save rebellious sinners like me. Jesus' kingdom is advancing on and he will complete his work. And as we have the opportunity now, we get to join God in his work. So as we sing this song, may it be that God stirs in your heart ways that you can be useful to him as you serve him as we pray, Lord, may your kingdom come. Thank you.